So tonight we're going to be doing an introduction to studying the Gospels, what do you need to know as we kind of get into them. Uh, three weeks time, so the next time is the world and background of the Gospels, kind of what is the world that Mark lives in before he picks his pen up, what is going on in his head. And then part three is Jesus as a theologian, and I'll talk about this more when we get to this, but it's, it's more that we've got four biographies on one person, each with their own spin, but they're nonetheless focused on this one person with this one person's theology. So what does Jesus think about himself? How does he go about doing his ministry? That kind of thing. What are the gospel writers talking about, in other words? Um, and then we do one on Luke's gospel. What is Luke's um, point, his purpose? What are some of his styles? One on Mark's gospel, one on Matthew's gospel, and finally on John's gospel. So these first three are kind of like an introduction, uh, kind of three introductions, if you like, but they are studies in their own rights. Um, that eventually lead us to the Gospels themselves. And I think doing it like this really brings out why and how each of them are different. We had a discussion at group the other day about how Matthew and Luke um, portrayed Judas's death quite differently. So how did Judas die? And it kind of gets sorted when you realise what the purposes and spins and perspectives and worldview is. Um, so things, knowing the differences really helps clarify what's going on. Good evening, uh, Henny and everyone else, and Jenny and Matt. Just find a if a seat if there is. There's two here. There's one there. We can always get more tables and chairs out if we need to. Um, it's so funny, I said to Jack earlier, there's no way we're going to fill all the chairs. But, uh, well, there's, you get Henny, I think you're over here, mate. Um, so, so yeah, as I say, we're, we're kind of kind of get deal with the necessary things in order to get to the gospels themselves. So, uh, so tonight we're going to be looking at an introduction to studying the gospels. Uh, so, before we kind of get into it, I uh, want to first hand over to the group. So, to talk among yourselves, just for about ten minutes or so. Um, what is your favourite gospel of the four? And why? If if you don't have a favourite, then listen to why other people have a favourite. Um, if you could only have uh, one of them, which which one? You might think that's the same question, but uh, well, you can decide if it is or not. But so if you could only have one gospel, which one? How would you summarise your favourite gospel? Someone who's never read them, never heard of them, and they say, "What are you reading?" Oh, I'm reading this book called Mark. Oh, what's it about? How would you summarise it? And then finally, what genre? Do you think it is? So just I'll check those out. Um, five ten minutes in your groups. Think about those questions. I just thought I'd at the very beginning kind of recommend some stuff. So I mean, um, as I said in the group chat with the book I recommended, um, Four Portraits, One Jesus by Mark Strauss. So as I said, this is not required reading. This is just if you're enjoying deep dive and you want to go deeper and you want to read some stuff, then this is. Really good. Mark Strauss is basically, and this is technically a textbook, but he seems to have taken what is loads of really complicated issues and made them all very kind of simple and easy to read. So I think this is a really great book. You can just read through um, as a book. If if you're finding that you want to go even deeper than that, then uh, and now this is you do have to go quite a lot deeper. But N.T. writes two volumes um, introducing the New Testament. So, the New Testament and the people of God. (laughs) Yeah, so the New Testament and the people of God, and Jesus and the victory of God. Uh, So this is part one, this is part two, and there's also part three and four and five, but there. (laughs) 
No, my labels are mine. Um, but, I mean, it's absolutely excellent, these books. They're, I mean, they are a slog to get through, but so valuable, so valuable. Um, so that's some uh, recommended stuff. Everyone should have a handout. Um, and if you, you'll notice there's lots of gaps on the handout that I've not filled in, that's so that you can kind of write in, fill it in, helps it go in the head. But also, you can get a digital copy of the handout if you like. So um, just let me know and I'll add you to the Google Drive where we've got them in there. So anyway, let's uh, crack on with the Gospels. So why do we have four? It's kind of strange. I don't think we necessarily think this is very strange. We've kind of got used to it. I mean, think about the book of Acts. Imagine if we had four books in the New Testament all about how the early church got started. It would seem like overkill. And I think the fact that we've got four Gospels, and we all know that we've got four Gospels, kind of means that we've just got used to how strange that is, that we have four books broadly telling the same story, and we hold each of them to be as authoritative and good as the other. Although everyone seems to prefer Luke. So uh, <laughs> let the others down gently. But um, it's funny, really, because uh, early on in the church, there's a guy called Irenaeus. So he's in the second century, only kind of about 80 years after Jesus. And Irenaeus is absolutely adamant that well, of course there's four. How can there be any less than four? How can there be any more than four? Don't you know there's, there's four winds of heaven, there's four corners of the earth? Um, there must be four Gospels. Uh, again, I think, I think he's more just kind of taking for granted the fact that the church has accepted that there are four, and we've acknowledged that there are four, and so he's now kind of after the fact, saying it's absolutely necessary. But it is interesting that very, very, very early on, the church is taking these four documents and saying these aren't just normal books. Have to bear in mind there are tons of accounts of the life of Jesus. And very early on the church is saying these four, there's something about them, they're scripture. And so, I mean, we have about 5,000 New Testament manuscripts today. And the overwhelming majority, about a third of them, are just the Gospels. When you consider we've got 27 books of the Bible, and about a third of 5,000 manuscripts are just four of those books. They were very, very popular. No disputes. Books like uh, Revelation and Second Peter, these were still being debated about whether or not we should consider them scripture into the third century. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John even, that, I mean, that, that ship has sailed by the time you get to even kind of 80 AD. Everyone knows these are scripture. Um, in fact, we look here, you can see that we have even in the New Testament four quotes from the Gospel of Luke and calls it scripture. So Jesus says in Luke 10, stay there eating, drinking, whatever they give you, for the work that serves as wages. 1 Timothy, I mean, this is only written uh, 60s, and Paul says the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while treading up the grain, and the work that serves as wages. So he's happy to quote both Deuteronomy, you know, the scripture of scriptures for Jews, and Luke, and put them both under the heading of scripture. Um, you've also got Paul quoting Luke's version of the Lord's Supper uh, account. And, I mean, this one's a bit more debatable, the third one, but if you read through Paul's letters, you'll notice there's a few times where he says, according to my gospel. And I think, generally, we regard that as according to the good news that I have taught to you, but the overwhelming majority opinion in the early church is that Paul is referring to his copy of Luke's gospel. So according to this gospel I've had, this is what's going to happen. Might not be the case, but it's, it's interesting nonetheless. So... Um, yeah, and um, yeah, actually, yeah, and one other thing we find, uh, so not to get too complicated, 
there's a work called the Didache, which is a kind of an instruction manual on the church. We don't get too bogged down on this. But this is written probably in the 60s, early 60s. And it quotes Matthew all the time. So Matthew's gospel is not only becoming knowledge as scripture, but is going far away enough that this document can be written uh, quoting it all the time. And again, not to get too bogged down, but 1 Clement, which is a letter written probably about 70 AD from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. Uh, the church in Corinth has cast off their elders. And so the church in Rome writes them a letter to say, you shouldn't do that. And they, he quotes from the Gospels all the time in it. So very, very early on, these are being considered scripture. Now, I think it's helpful to kind of have this... Um, memory device for a kind of remembering the, the, the characteristics of each of them. So if you get your Bibles out and turn me to Revelation chapter 4. Does someone just want to read Revelation chapter 4 verses 6 and 7? As loud as you can for everyone to hear. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. There we go. Great. Now, they, they go on, those four beasts go on to worship the Lord and say, holy, holy, holy. Now, again, back to Irenaeus from earlier. He reads this and goes, well, of course, this is a prophecy of the four Gospels. Um, which it isn't. I mean, that's not, that's not good exegesis. But it is a helpful mnemonic, I think, because it, it kind of captures something about the characteristics of each of them. And so, that, I mean, throughout church history, people have applied them differently. But I think the best way to remember it is Matthew is the kingly gospel. Matthew's big focus is the kingdom of God. It's very, very kind of uh, Jewish in its hope and expectation and its fulfillment, which is why he's always quoting back to the Old Testament to say, the promise of the king has now come. Mark... Uh, is often associated with the ox because Mark is the gospel of the suffering servant, just like how the ox is the suffering beast of burden in the fields. Um, so Mark, I'd say, focuses on the suffering nature. Okay? In Mark, the big focus is the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Luke is often associated with the man because it's very kind of um, Human, if you like, it's it's very matter of fact. It deals with the data. He deals with it like a doctor, like Nikki mentioned earlier. Um, it's it's just kind of very scientific, if you like. And then finally, John is associated with the eagle. You know, soars high in the sky, has this majesty to it. You just want to gaze upon it and and um, kind of watch it dwelling. And so John is kind of like associated with that uh, eagle. And so, as I say. This is not what Revelation 4 is talking about, but do use this as a helpful mnemonic, I think. Getting into, the, into these Gospels, just thinking, what is the focus of what's going on here? So, um, let's talk about when they were written and who they were written by. Uh, so, dates and authorship. 
And this is actually quite important, not just because uh, you know the further you go away from Jesus' death, the, the, the you know the more the memory fades and things get wrong, but it has to be they have to be written before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Not only because most of the authors are dead by that time, but also because Jesus prophesied that. And so this is a really helpful starting point. But also the church, as we've seen in the book of Acts, has lots of different issues that it faces in those years. And so when you go to the Gospels, you kind of see that different issues are being addressed. But so to, to kind of go through it, Mark is very, very early. It's almost certain that Mark was written first. And Mark was probably written about 42 AD. I mean, in the ancient world, to have a document that describes events that that close to the time is a real gift. Um, so Mark probably wrote 10 years or so after Jesus ascended, uh, which we'll talk about this more when we get to Mark, but when you think about how abruptly the Gospel of Mark ends, it just kind of, they heard Jesus alive and then they were afraid. Where's the ending? And people used to add endings on. But uh, I think it's on purpose. I think it's because Mark, does, Mark is like an evangelistic tract. So it finishes and people go, now what? And the, the reader says, well, go find the apostles, talk to them. So very, very early, followed by Matthew, probably around the early 50s. Uh, and then Luke comes third, around the mid 50s, mid to late 50s. Um, oh, it must be around the 50s because as we saw earlier, Paul quotes from it. And you can't quote from something if it doesn't exist. And lastly, John comes in early 60s. Now, it used to be very, very common in the academy to have the dates look something more like this. Jerusalem's destruction happens, and then later on, someone claiming to be Mark uh, wrote it, and then in the hundreds, someone claiming to be Luke wrote theirs, and then someone claiming to be Matthew, and then someone claiming to be John, and so on and so on. So that, that was a really dominant view for quite a long time. And it's only recently, I mean, I've just got a book here, if you are interested in this stuff. This only came out 18 days ago, Rethinking the Dates of the New Testament. The person who wrote this doesn't care, really, if scripture is accurate, authoritative, whatever. They're just looking at it as a historian. And uh, they have very early dates. I mean, the dates I've shown are pretty much what uh, he goes with. So, there we go. Um, Mark, 42, Matthew, early 50s. Mid Luke fifties, uh, mid Luke fifties, Luke mid fifties, and John early sixties. Now, as I say, that's quite important to, to think about because um, something has to be written, but it's not like the very next day people in churches across Europe are going to be thinking, "Oh, this is scripture." It's written, and then it has time to be circulated around, and then it has time for people to go, "There's something about this. This is scripture." And then it takes time for people to be saying, I'm going to sit under its authority. So the Gospels have to be written early enough for that kind of process to happen, which is a lot slower in the ancient world than it is for us. You know, nowadays, something happens in the Middle East, we get an update on our phone about it almost immediately. Things are much slower than that. So the, the, the kind of view that these things happen way after the fact is pretty much, we can say pretty safely, is a bit of a fantasy. We can have good confidence that people who wrote the Gospels uh, were there, and it wasn't that far away for them, it wasn't that long ago for them. Yes, now this is an important point. Why do they have authority? 
Because surely they only want authority if they're associated with the apostles. They were the authority in the church. Why Mark? Who is Mark? Why Luke? Why does Luke have a place? So, it's, again, it's pretty much beyond dispute. No doubt there will be some people who would want to dispute it. That Mark's gospel is actually Mark writing down Peter's gospel. So Peter, as an apostle, with the Lord Jesus, seeing all these things, and later on, bear in mind he's a fisherman, he can probably speak Greek well enough, he's probably not the most literate, meets this Mark, and we know that they're together, we see it in the book of Acts, we see it in 1 Peter, and then records uh, his gospel to Peter. Now, again, people who knew them, we have a guy called Papias, who was a friend of both of them, writes down how he knew this firsthand. So it's, it's very, um, very, very likely that Mark was accepted in Scripture because, oh, this is the Apostle Peter's telling the story. Notice when you read through Mark the kind of role that Peter plays. Peter's clearly not trying to paint himself as a hero. He's, he's showing himself warts and all, and it's almost like he's showing his failure to glorify, to magnify Jesus' glory. Secondly, um, well, Matthew has authority because Matthew's an apostle. John, the same thing. But Luke... Again, go through the book of Acts. Luke is Paul's travelling companion. As we saw earlier, Luke is uh, quoted by Paul. Paul clearly has access to the Gospel of Luke. So this one was considered authoritative because the Apostle Paul used this Gospel. So they all, very quickly in the life of the church, were made of, uh, seen as authoritative because of um, how the, as I say, the apostolic authority they had. So... Uh, let's, let's jump in and look at uh, the, what we call the synoptic gospels. So if you don't know this, if you've not heard this word before, um, it literally just means viewing together. So the synoptic gospels are what we call Matthew, Mark and Luke. It's a pretty horrifying image there, but I think it gets the point across. <laughs> um, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but uh, <laughs> it's as though Matthew, Mark and Luke have broadly the same uh, view. They're talking about the same events. There's a few differences in the details, but you read Matthew, you read Luke, you read Mark, you're not getting a very different um, story. John, on the other hand, clearly is coming in from a very different perspective. Now, as I say, with the, with the kind of dating, you can see why, because John is kind of writing some place than everyone else. He's kind of saying, right, that's already been said, that's already known. What can I talk about as the kind of intimate disciple that, that the relationship I have with Jesus? What can I add to the story? And so we, we call them the synoptics, as I say, because they are uh, so similar. They have the same kind of focus. And some differences between John and the synoptics I think would be quite helpful um, to talk about. So the first thing is the synoptics don't really give many date lines. Everything that happens in the synoptics could happen in a year, theoretically. Whereas John takes place over three years. Also notice, whenever you pick up a synoptic, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or Luke, Jesus' ministry starts when John the Baptist is thrown in prison. So he comes out of the desert, John the Baptist is thrown in prison, then he does, begins his ministry. In John, I mean, I think it's in John 4, where John is talking about Jesus doing stuff and just puts in brackets, and John still wasn't in prison. It's like John is saying, let's, let's start from way early. Let's talk about the things Jesus was doing before his ministry, quote-unquote, started. Um, a, a big difference, I think, between the two is that John, the, John 1 to 12, 
happens over three years. John 13 onwards happens in the space of a few days. So you've kind of got this massive time scale and this tiny time scale with about, as I say, two halves. Uh, the first half is very public, this is public ministry. The second half of John is very private. Uh, whereas the synoptics follow largely a stable pacing. So Luke has probably covered as much time in kind of the early three chapters that we were going through last year as he has in kind of the last three chapters that we've gone through. Um, yes, uh, an answer that was put forward in the early church about why John is so different. And as I say, it's worth reading through John after reading one and seeing actually they are very different. Uh, the early church's answer was essentially that, as I kind of mentioned earlier, John read the others and thought, oh, well, they've got most of it in, but they're missing out some really big stuff, so let me add some in. Which is an okay beginning answer, uh, but it's a bit more complicated than that, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get to John. Um, so, yeah, but on your handout, there's a list of things which are different about John and the synoptics, uh, just took from the, from the book. So, do have a look at that. And it's also worth saying that the differences don't necessarily mean contradiction. So, the Last Supper, for instance. Matthew has, I think, six verses about the Last Supper. Luke, I think, seven about, about that. It has the story of Jesus going through the bread and the wine and all these kind of things. John just says, when they finished eating, Jesus got up. But then it includes a whole passage about Jesus washing their feet that isn't found in any of the synoptics. Does it mean that John added that in? Or is it just that there's, they didn't talk about it in the synoptics? It seems more likely. They just fill in different slots. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean a contradiction. It doesn't look like it at all. It actually, I think, helps to round out the historical accuracy. It shows that someone else was there, and they saw something else as being the most important thing to note down. So, uh, how similar are the synoptics to one another? Um, so, as I say, Mark comes first. So, Mark write down, writes down Peter's account. And this is, this is what people call Mark in priority. Don't be put off by the phrase. As I say, it just means Mark came first. Matthew then comes and uh, uses Mark as a source, as well as other things. Uh, then Luke comes to write down his gospel, and he uses both Matthew and Mark as sources, as well as other eyewitnesses, which is what Luke says in the beginning of his gospel. I've, I've sought to provide an accurate account from many sources. And then John he seems to know what's in the synoptics, but he doesn't necessarily use them as sources. So that graph, I think, is really helpful at showing um, the kind of similarities you have. So if you were to read Matthew and uh, Luke... You've read 76% of Mark. Uh, in, in fact, more than that, because if you were to read Matthew and Luke, you've got 76% and then the 18% that they share. So the point being is, Mark only has 3% of Mark isn't found in the other two. But you can see, as you can see, how, how similar they are. I mean, Mark and Luke only got 1%. Uh, Luke's got about 35%, Justin, him, Matthew's got about 20 but with similarities like that, you can't, it's, it's kind of inescapable to say clearly they were using each other as sources. So that's really um, helpful, I think, for understanding how they kind of relate to one another. Uh, they were happy to use one another, but had own, their own things, hear the things that other people were saying. And as, I, as I've put on the handout, 55% of Matthew is found in Mark, and 65% of Luke can be found in Matthew and Mark. So... 
Uh, in your groups, uh, we're just going to kind of put some of that stuff into practice a little bit. We're going to play Spot the Difference. So on your tables, you should have four pieces of paper, uh, stories that are found in the Gospels. So one is walking on water, one is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, one is the uh, water to... No, not water to wine. Oh, you'll find out what they are. But just in pairs, there's four options. You can choose which one you want to do. There's a short one, there's some long ones. You don't have to go through the whole passage. Oh, and they are double-sided. Bear in mind, they are double-sided. You don't have to go through the whole passage. Just play a game and spot the difference. See what's in common. If there's something which is literally identical, make a note of it. If there's something which is completely at variance, make a note of it. Just see what you've got, what's going on in between the synoptics and John. So I'll leave that over to you for 10 minutes. I hope you found that helpful um, and a good way of kind of seeing the, the, some of the differences. Um, I, I forgot to say at the beginning, but it doesn't really matter because I can say it now, but it's worth thinking through these kind of things. Bear in mind it's likely that Jesus spoke in Aramaic and the Gospel writers uh, translated into Greek. So sometimes we have to ask if the differences are because they've translated what he said differently. Maybe uh, this is something that Jesus has said twice. I mean, as we've said in sermons multiple times, Jesus was a travelling preacher who probably said the same thing multiple times. And so it would have been recorded at different points. So maybe this is a repeated saying or something slightly different. Uh, has the gospel writer missed phrases out or included phrases that the others didn't in order to help show their, their points? So there's all those things worth thinking about. But I hope you enjoyed kind of seeing uh, the similarities and the differences. My, my favourite one that I put there was Matthew's account of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted is this long, and Luke's account is this long, and Mark basically says, and he went into the desert for a bit. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, we'll talk about this more when we get to Mark, but actually, there is a significant difference there. I mean, Mark has been talking about how Jesus has been casting out demons, but then Mark says, and Jesus was cast out into the wilderness. None of the others say that. He also includes that little detail about that being with the beasts. But we'll talk about that more when we get to Mark. So, now we get to the bit which I'm really looking forward to talking about, um, which will become especially obvious why in a moment, but how to read the Gospels. Now, that might seem like an obvious uh, question. How do we read the Gospels? You can say, you know, with your eyes. Um, but I want to make this point that what we think we're reading changes how we process it and how we understand it. So, I'm just going to give you an analogy. So, once upon a time... What are we about to hear? A story. Okay. Just tell me if you like this fairy tale. Once upon a time, a princess in a faraway kingdom hypothesized this equation, <laughs> which I won't read. And this essay will seek to prove the validity of such an equation and show its functional application in the realm of applied engineering. That makes sense. As a sentence, the princess thought this, and now I'm taking this, and I'm seeing if it works. But genre-wise, it confuses our brains, and it's not we're not happy with that, because we started with a nice story about a princess in a faraway kingdom, and now we're having to deal with engineering. And what we're expecting to come next, how we're processing those details, changes simply on the assumption of what we're going into. So if you start, as I say, with that... Um, once upon a time, you're setting yourself up to read the story in a certain way. You're not thinking that, you know, if someone says, once upon a time, there was a prince in the faraway kingdom, you're not saying, which kingdom? 
you know, which empire was it? Was it, was it Gaul? Um, well, no, it's just a fairy tale. Whereas if someone starts telling you the story of kind of uh, one of the British Army's triumphs in World War II, you might be a bit more interested about where this happened. And so that you're asking different questions and you're thinking in a different way. So knowing genre affects the way that you read something. Um, I've put the example on the handout of Psalm 42. You know, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Is he talking about going for a swim in choppy waters? No, and we wouldn't even think that because we know when we're opening the book of Psalms, we're opening poetry. So we're expecting symbolic language and we're expecting that kind of spin. Now, I've put some examples there. Once upon a time, dear John, this essay will seek to demonstrate that. That very much change what you think you're going into. So what genre are the Gospels? I think we um, can all kind of agree they're history. But what kind of history are there? Are they? I mean, as I say, you can read a historical biography, which might be focused on, you know, you can read something about the political achievements of Napoleon Bonaparte, or you can focus more on the family history of Napoleon Bonaparte. So history is never just bare history, there's always a concern. If you're watching um, a sports broadcast, if someone supports the team that won, they might tell that story historically, but with a different emphasis. So, so what is the emphasis of the Gospels? And Mark Strauss in his book gives a phrase which I think sums it up well. It's historical narrative, but it's not just bare history, it's motivated by theological concerns. So Luke isn't just trying to tell you the story about some bloke because he believes this some bloke is the son of God. And so he's trying to tell you an accurate story of the son of God, which comes with various connotations. So that's uh, really important to kind of get our head into gear when we open these books. This is historical narrative motivated by theological concern. So it's a story. Which brings us on to the next question of if it's a story... And if it's scripture, that means it's an authoritative story. Now, we know what it means when we're saying that Paul's letters are authoritative, right? Because Paul says, this is true, you must do this. The authority is, okay, well, I will. But what does it mean for a story to teach, a story to kind of have an authority? And I think in the West, we're much more comfortable with this kind of systematic theology. If, if I want to know, if I want to be taught, I will turn to the page which is on sin, and it will tell me B, the origin of sin, um, and then kind of C, the doctrine of inheritance. It just kind of goes through it. This is what this is. The Gospels don't teach like that. They're stories. They're, they're not trying to just give you a list of facts you should believe. And so how do stories teach? Which leads me on to the best film that's ever been produced in the world. But we do have to make one more stop before we get to the best story ever produced in the world. Um, can you put your hand up if you've ever watched a film that was so tense that you had to sit on the edge of your seat while you were watching it? Matt, can you, can you come up and, and tell everyone what the film is and then try and sum it up? <laughs> Okay, uh, who else had that hand up? Lily, did you have your hand up? I did, but I can't even tell you what the films are called. Okay, well, I'm going to have to pick on Old Faithful then. Anna? I know this story well. Um, well, the worst two hours of my life. I was watching Captain Phillips. Can you come up? Anna, can you come up? I need you to kind of tell the story of Captain Phillips. Go on, go on. Okay, do it from there. 
Okay. Was anyone sat on the edge of their seat? <laughs> and I think you can fairly assume before you watch it that it's all going to turn out okay, right? Okay. Okay. The point is, we can know what the film's about, and we can hear it described to us, and we can generally know what the ending is, but actually being in the story, it draws us in in a way that just hearing information, you know, I don't, I don't read this and go, oh, uh, next page, next page, whereas stories have that power. Stories really draw you in, they get under your psyche, um, you, you think about them even when they're over. The lessons you hear in there um, stick with you. And I think that's what we need to bear in mind about the Gospels, they're not just a collection of truths. They're not just uh, pithy sayings. They do include some. Jesus says things which are just short aphorisms, but that's not what they are. Um, Luke didn't say, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this, and Jesus said this. Most of it is action. He went there. He did this. And so we need to ask, how do stories teach? And as I say, that brings us to Shrek. Greatest film ever produced. Uh, well, maybe that's Shrek too, actually. But it, it's, a, it's a close competition. I think the reason I go with Shrek, and I'll be referencing it many times as we go through this, but Shrek, the power in the storytelling is in its ability to challenge your norms and your expectations and to be subversive. So Shrek never says the words, you shouldn't judge someone by the outside appearance, you should get to know them as a person. And yet, if you finish the film and haven't got that, you've been watching, you've been watching the film with your eyes closed. Because that is the, the, the way that it draws you in. You, you identify with the character of Shrek. When people are um, maligning him just because he's an ogre, you feel the injustice. When he thinks that Fiona won't love him because she's an ogre, again, you, you kind of join in with it. You, you get so involved in it that anyone who would come up against my precious Shrek... Um, <laughs> the, 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 the point being is that it, it teaches you by drawing you in. It teaches you not by telling you a lesson, but by challenging you and, and identifying you with someone in it. So I want to talk about some specific ways um, that do that. And I just want to compare this kind of style of teaching with um, like Paul's letters. So Luke, for instance, gives us the account of Jesus dying. And he just says, it was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud, loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus dies. Luke never says, and he died for your sins. But about five years to ten years later, when Paul sits down to write 1 Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he's... Luke isn't trying to do the same thing as what Paul is doing. Paul is doing something completely legitimate, but Paul's not trying to tell a story. He's trying to teach. He's trying to give an explanation. And just bear this in mind, because one of the things we're going to be talking about is how they use symbols and, and um, things like that. But notice what Luke does include. He does include the fact that there's darkness. He does include the fact that the curtain of the temple tears in two. These are the kind of details that... You have to ask, why did he include that? Because he's teaching something through it. Um, so, how do stories teach? How does Shrek teach? How do the Gospels teach? And the first thing I'd say is, through examples. 
When you open a book, the very first thing you're thinking is, is this someone whose side I am on? Because if you think yes, then they become an example to you of what you should do and what you shouldn't do in various situations. Uh, I only know one person in this room who's going to get the analogy, and even then it's a bit shaky, but Penny, you know Assassin's Creed 3? You, you start off and you think you're one of the goodies, but then about a third of the way through the game you find out you're actually on the baddies team, and it's like, whoa, hang on a second. But it's so clever because it makes you think, I thought there was someone I agreed with, and now I'm having to second-guess myself. So in the Gospels, you're pretty much uh, opening assuming Jesus is the good guy, and whoever opposes him, you know, whoever his Lord Farquhar is, be it the Pharisees or whatever, I don't like them, and they're not my example. But imagine if the Gospels were being told from the perspective of the Pharisees. You know, this is the clever thing that C.S. Lewis did when he wrote the Screwtape Letters. He's in the position of a demon, talking to another demon, saying, how do we stop these guys from becoming Christians? And it's, it's so clever, because you're seeing it from the other side. So, they teach through examples. Is this someone whose side I'm on? Uh, and again, just to reference it, when Shrek starts, it starts with a scene about them going to kill the ogre. And so you think, yeah, you know, this is... He's the baddie. But then very soon you realise, oh, no, we like the ogre. Okay, symbols. Symbols are so important in storytelling. If you like Star Wars, you know, think about what it conjures up in your mind when you see a red lightsaber. Think about, um, uh, well, I could just go through a whole load of things, you know, Lord of the Rings. I could go through Shrek again, but I'm not going to. Um, Symbols appear in stories and, and do something to us if we know what they mean. The first time we watch something, we might not get all the significance. But once we know what the symbols represent, it's like Anna graciously watched all of Lord of the Rings with me recently. And I had to kind of say, oh, that is symbolic of, of this. You know, the rings, they have this kind of power. Um, and so I kind of had to fill her in on what the symbols are. Um, now, again, we saw Luke earlier mention the curtain tearing in two. If you have no idea about the, the Old Testament or the significance of that, that's not going to mean much. A curtain torn, a piece of fabric ripped, so what? But if you're a Jew and you know the temple's significance, he dies and the curtain temple rips. My goodness, that's full of symbolism. And so stories use this to kind of take you in, to, to take it further, to, to make you think through what's going on. Um, so I couldn't really think of a better phrase to describe it, so you have to f- forgive the technical jargon, but archetypes. So what I mean by an archetype is something becomes so ingrained as an example of something that you can just quote it and people know what you're talking about. If I said, for instance, if I was um, going to meet someone who I didn't get on with, I said to Anna, right, fine, time to go meet Hitler. You would know that what I'm saying is I really don't like the person I'm going to meet. They are cruel. They are, uh, you know, dict- dictatorial. Uh, it, it conjures up something about that person. We can just say Hitler, and we think of all these different things. Or, or even if you, yeah, World War II is such a kind of a rich treasure trove for this. But if you turned on the TV and the first scene was a husband kissing his wife on the cheek and saying, "Right, time to go and storm the beaches of Normandy." You have no idea what the story is. You don't know what he's going to do. But what you do know straight away is he's going into a situation where he's going to be pushed back and have to push forward. You know, he's going into a tough situation. So the kind of archetypes are a way that um, can just draw you in and straight away you know who you're dealing with. 
So it's kind of what pantomimes do. We talk about the pantomime villain, and we know what we mean by that. But again, you can just say, don't be a Pharisee, and completely detach from the kind of socio-historical context of what a Pharisee actually was, we come up with um, some things in our mind of what we think that means. Um, Or if someone describes someone being strict as draconian, draconian law was you do something, you die. Most of the time we don't mean that. We just mean harsh, strict... So archetypes have that really powerful function. Um, and again, they only make sense if you know what they're referring to. Someone who's never heard of World War II isn't going to get what I mean if I say Hitler. But if you know the story, if you've heard the story, then they make sense. And then lastly, irony slash twist. These are kind of two things, but kind of one thing at the same time. These, I just think, are so clever. When you see a film that has a twist in it, like, I remember the first time I watched a film that had a proper twist. I'm not going to ruin it if you've, if you've not seen it, but The Beautiful Mind. Can you, how many of you have seen that film? Okay. I remember being, I was 16 when I watched that film. And I don't think I've ever seen a film with such a big twist. I remember watching it, you know, going on, this is a normal film. And suddenly, like, uh, what? Everything that I've thought up until this point has been wrong. And suddenly you're now reassessing everything you saw. Could that have made sense with the, with the twist? And you realise, actually, it all made sense all along... I was just missing a piece of information which makes it make all the, all the sense. And, and, and irony kind of does the same thing because it makes you reconsider something. Um, I, I talked a few weeks ago about uh, Jonah. There's this big piece of irony in Jonah where uh, the safest place he could possibly be in a storm is not on the boat. The safest place he could be in a storm is in the sea. It just doesn't make sense, but that's kind of how irony works. It, it, it causes you to question things you thought were just norms. And a, a second point I'd put with irony and twists is that um, the payoff in a twist comes from knowing the story up to that point. So, uh, Phoebe, this is your time to shine. Avengers Endgame, how good is it? It's one of the best films ever made. If you don't know about Avengers Endgame, how many films are there leading up to that film? I think there's 23? So you have to watch 23 films to get to this film. But my goodness, that moment of sitting in the cinema when that film came on, ah, it was amazing. And there was so much payoff, even when things are subverted and twisted, because we know the story up till this point. And, And so twists have this ability to draw you in. You think you know the story, you've got all the information, and then they give you something new, and now everything's having to be reconfigured, and it's kind of this exciting thing. And I, I, would, I, I think that the Gospels are doing exactly this. The Gospels assume that you know the story of the Old Testament, and now they're saying, and here's the twist on how it's going to be fulfilled. Now, as I say, in a twist, all you have is one new piece of information added, but that one new piece of information completely changes everything you thought before. So next time, we're going to be talking about what that story is, what Jews living at the time of Jesus thought the story was and how the Gospels are those ironic twists. But for now, just bear that in mind. So that's kind of how, that's how stories teach. That's how they draw you in. And lastly, and it is going to be very quick because I'm aware of the time, we're going to talk about shaping. This is quite an important um, concept, really. Now, it often is called, and again, don't be put off by the, by the jargon, but it's called form criticism. It's not meaning criticism as in um, kind of pushing it down or saying it's bad. 
criticism as an analysis, so form analysis you could call it. And essentially, all form criticism is, is about asking the questions of how has this storyteller shaped this story overall, so that big picture structure, and how have they shaped the little stories in that structure? So you think about storytelling, uh, if someone's writing a story, they often don't include everything that they had thought in their head. They might have had a scene in their head which was much smaller than they thought it would be, or they've changed details. And, and, and you know, if you, do, if, you're, if you preach, you do this all the time. Um, so, for instance, on, at Odium on Sunday, I told the story about Corax and Tissius, which you'll hear at Church Crookham, and I knew, as soon as I saw the passage, I was going to tell the story. I didn't know if it was going to be at the beginning or at the end or in the middle, but I knew that it was going to go in there somewhere. And where it was going would, de would determine how much detail I was going to include. Where, where am I going with this? So form criticism is just asking the questions of where are they going uh, with this story. So the, the small kind of picture details are about in this specific block, so for instance the things you've got on your table that we looked at earlier, what have they included which the others didn't? What have they missed out that the others did? How are they building their story? So uh, Luke talks about there being two cups at the, Lord's, at the um, Last Supper. He includes the phrase, this is my blood of the new covenant, the others don't. So there's that kind of small stuff. There's also the big picture stuff. Um, and just on that kind of big picture, I've just kind of made this graph because I think it's a helpful way of kind of thinking about it. So you've got in your head generally what the outline is like. So imagine you're Luke and you've got kind of 60% of your gospel done. And then you remember this parable that someone told you that Jesus told about uh, Lazarus and the poor man. They both die. And Luke is, oh, no, that, that, I've got to include that. that is, that's one of Jesus' best parables. And they haven't included that in Matthew and Mark, so I've got to put that in. So now he has to think, is this about setting the scene? Yeah. Am I going to put this at the beginning of the ministry? No. Is it part of the solution of wrapping up? No. I'll put it in the main content in the middle of his ministry. And this is the same as I say for any kind of story or talk you're giving, whether it's a sermon or um, an obituary or a gospel or a book, you always think in this kind of way. And so form criticism is asking the questions like, why has the gospel writer included this here in this form? Is there more information they could have included? Is there less? They, they, is there stuff they could have taken out? Um, so I've got an example, um, which we won't spend loads of time on, well, barely any time at all, but Luke 4. Um, can someone open Luke 4 and just read Luke 4, verse 23? And I'll just set the scene as you read that. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has just come out of the wilderness. He's been tempted by the devil. He's overcome the devil's temptations. And he's come to the, the synagogue in Nazareth. And he's reading, he's read the scroll from Isaiah. Now, if someone reads verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do you hear in your hometown what we have heard you, heard that you did in Capernaum? There we go. Thanks, James. So, do hear what we heard you done in Capernaum. 
Has Jesus gone to Capernaum yet? No. Verse 31 says, Jesus went down to Capernaum. So why has Luke included this story, which references the fact that he's gone to Capernaum, before he actually gets to Capernaum? He's done it because, for him, this scene of Jesus in the synagogue, reading out this um, uh, message from Isaiah, is like the defining feature that marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is like the manifesto, so we're going to put this right at the beginning. This helps set the scene, so from this point on we know what he's here to do. And the Gospel writers aren't trying to do everything in chronological order. We shouldn't expect that they are, because they're not trying to just give a, a, you know, a timeline of Jesus' life. They're trying to tell the story of the Son of God. And so they are free to move things around, to change the form, because that's what they need to do. So that's the kind of big details, and the small details of formal criticism will, will come up um, as we go through. But I mean, I was having a conversation with Jack the other day, um, and Jack was telling me that he's reading through Matthew himself. And he was reading Matthew 23, and in Matthew 23, Jesus gives the same speech that we've been doing that Sunday morning at church. And Jack said, I noticed a few differences in there. And we had a good conversation about it. This is a good example of form criticism. Luke is including things differently to Matthew. No one's at fault there. They're just trying to tell a different story. Um, so, uh, yeah, so as we go through the Gospels, we should kind of have that in mind. What's the form? What's the story they're trying to tell? Now, as I say, we'll have a week on what story is Luke telling. We'll have a week on what story is Mark telling and so on. But that kind of leads, leads to this kind of conclusion point, which is... Matthew is trying to tell the story in his way. Mark is trying to tell the story in his way. Luke in his way and John in his way. It's very often, I think, to kind of have this uh, desire to just harmonise them all. If we just had one gospel that told the same story, that would be much better. And you often hear this in sermons. You'll notice that uh, me and Andy will very, very rarely, as we're going through Luke, quote Matthew and Mark. We only really tend to do it if we really feel like it needs it. Because we're not trying to do a sermon on just a gospel. We're trying to preach through Luke. And so we want to tell Luke's story. It might be helpful sometimes to dip in, but Matthew, as I say, he's got his focus. He's got his emphasis. So let's read what Matthew's trying to tell us about Jesus. And so on with all the others. So let's not just harmonise the differences. Let's let's, um, enjoy the diversity that we have, the blessing we have of four gospels. So a recap of what we've gone over today. And then we'll do a few questions, if anyone has any. So we've talked about the dating and the authorship. Uh, we've talked about the relationship between the synoptics and John. The importance of genre and how stories teach their lessons or their truths. They're not like a systematic theology or a letter. They are stories. And shaping and theme in the Gospels. Um, so... I uh, hope that's been helpful as an introduction to studying the Gospels.